All right, let's begin this morning, Micah chapter 7. For context, let's begin reading in verse 14. It says, Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitary in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning to gather together once again in freedom. Thank you for our Sunday school hour. Please be with every teacher and every student. And now, Lord, work in our hearts. Open our understanding that we might understand the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. So we covered verses 14 through 17 over the last two weeks where we saw Micah's prayer in verse 14 and then God's response in verse 15. Micah was praying for the blessings of the days of old, which God said he was going to do. And he was going to answer Micah's prayer with great power. The marvelous things that God had done would once again reappear for Israel Both the houses of Israel, remember, they would be taken captive. They would be scattered throughout the world. And it was all because of their rebellion against God. They had forsaken God. They had gone after strange gods. And they had forsaken God's prophets and their counsel. And so they went into captivity. And most of them would be scattered. There would be a small remnant that would remain intact in Babylon for 70 years. And after 70 years, they would be able to return to the land because God was going to perform marvelous things. He was going to overthrow the Babylonians, which he did. And Judah would miraculously be delivered from captivity. You think about how God used Cyrus to proclaim the decree to to be released from captivity and return to the land and build the temple and the city. It was overnight. And they came out of captivity and, and God blessed them with these marvelous works. And all that had been scattered, they were free to come back as well. We know not all did from the book of Esther, for example. Those were some that were still living out there even though they could have returned. Um, but all those who were out there could return if they chose. And then in verses 16 and 17, when the other nations would see how undeniably God worked on Israel's behalf, they would be left confounded that all of their might was so easily overthrown. And they would um, put their hands over their mouths. They would stop their ears. They wouldn't want to hear it anymore. They would be speechless. And the enemy would be brought low. We saw last week they would hide in the holes of the earth out of fear of God's vengeance. And then in verse 17, we mentioned how it's a picture of God's coming day of wrath at the end of this age when He is going to uh, put down all rule and authority. He will be the authority. And those people who have rejected Christ, they will hide just like it says in verse 17, and God is going to deal with them. So I hope you're in Christ this morning. Amen. 
And, and with that being established of, of what was going to transpire here, beginning back in verse 14, we, we have this great set of verses, amen, verses 18, 19, and 20, which not only speak of God's deliverance from captivity back then, but it also is clearly showing us Jesus Christ who offers us deliverance from captivity today. And so this is a, a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18 again as we begin today. It says, Who is a God like unto thee? We could just park it right there. That pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. And so we, we saw how God is once again going to do marvelous things for Israel. Bring them out of captivity. Bring them to Jerusalem and Judea. And with that in mind... What better way for Micah to end this prophecy than by asking, who is a God like unto thee? (laughs) When God performs marvelous wonders on the behalf of His people, it is to teach us to say, who is a God like unto thee? God is separating Himself from all the other false gods. He is identifying Himself as the one true God in our life. And the children of Israel, they were delivered from Egypt. Um, After they were delivered from Egypt, remember they watched as the Egyptian army pursued after them, came into the Red Sea, and God drowned every one of them. And they saw their dead bodies upon the shore. And they get to the, on the other side of the sea as they watch all this, they then begin to sing praises to God. Remember that in Exodus 15? And they said this, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? That word wonders is the exact same for marvelous things here in Micah 7. And so when God does wonders, when He does miraculous things, it is to cause His people to rejoice, to praise Him, and to ask Declare, maybe is the better way to put it, who is a God like unto thee? They acknowledge it was God who performed the wonders. When Micah says, who is a God like unto thee? This Hebrew word for God, it is one that speaks of God's strength, His power. It is the Almighty God. Who is a God like unto thee? Our God is Almighty. Amen. The Bible says, amongst many things, but it says that He is mighty in strength and wisdom. He is mighty in battle. He is mighty to save. What a great God. And the attention here in our text is rightly upon God and not upon them as a people. It's not, who is a people like unto us that God would favor us so greatly? The attention is all on God, and that's where it belongs. The blessings to come upon them would not be a result of their righteousness or their worthiness, but their existence would be the result of who God is because our God is gracious. And as we'll see here at the end, He performs the truth and the mercies that He promised to His fathers or to the fathers. So we must look to God as the fountain of all our blessings, not because we have earned it. 
because we good independent Baptists like to think, well, we're, we're the ones with all the, I mean, we're the best ones. <laughs> so, you know, we get this idea that, yeah, we're, we're just so awesome. I mean, we got all this knowledge and all this doctrine and all this kind of stuff. God's blessings are because he's good. He's good. And I'm glad he is. I don't deserve what God has blessed me with. And, and here's, here's what I've learned, even more so now as pastor, that God honors his word. You know, God can use, God can use a lost person to communicate the word of God, and it can be effective because God's word is truth. I, I've, I've seen it. I mean, we, you know, you hear testimonies of deacon so-and-so got saved, pastor so-and-so got saved. All the while, they've been preaching righteousness and truth and people have been getting saved. Why? Because God honors His Word. His Word is truth. It, it will not return void. And as Paul said, I don't care if they're preaching out of contention or not. I'm just glad that the Word of God is going forth and Christ is being preached. And so God is merciful because of who He is, not because of who we think we are. Jeremiah 3, verses 12 and 13 says, Go and proclaim these words towards the north. That is a reference to where they had been taken captivity. Go, go proclaim to the north uh, and say, Return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord. I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. But he says this, Only acknowledge thine iniquity that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree. That's their idolatry. And it says, and God said, and you have not obeyed my voice. You know, all God wanted from them and from us is that we acknowledge our sins against Him. Now, now with that acknowledgement comes the, re- the repentance, the and with that acknowledgement comes the understanding that we have got to get right with God, okay? I mean, you understand what I'm saying, I hope. But God says, return, only acknowledge your iniquity. Acknowledge your sinfulness, and, and we must cry out to Him for forgiveness. But we have to see who we really are apart from Christ. And I would think in our Sunday school class, many of you know who you are apart from Christ. And it's not good. Because as for me and my flesh, there dwells no good thing. And God wants you to understand that. So the question is asked, who is a God like unto thee? And we could do an entire series right there. Who is like unto God? Who is like unto a God that created all things? That could bring something out of nothing. Who is a God like that? Who is a God like unto thee who knows the end from the beginning? He already knows how things are going to play out in Russia and Ukraine. Who is a God like unto our God? Who is a God like unto our God who can subdue his enemies just by speaking? A sharp two-edged sword goes out of his mouth and he slays his enemy. He's just got to speak it. Who is a God like unto our God who will cause it to rain upon the just and the unjust? Even the wicked ranchers receive rain. God is so good. Who is a God like our God? We could go on and on, but here in verse 18, 
this is very interesting because it, it just described how they're going to come out of captivity. And remember from last week or two weeks ago, I can't remember when, but somewhere in Jeremiah it said, people will no longer say the Lord God who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, but people will say the Lord God who delivered us from captivity. And the meaning was that this is going to be such a miracle of them coming out of captivity that it's going to be viewed even mightier than them coming out of Egypt. And, and that's important when we think of verse 18 because the question is asked, who is a God like unto our God or unto thee? And, and look at what he says. He doesn't say who can deliver from the uh, captivity. But he says, who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? Who is a God like our God? This is absolutely amazing. We have a God who can pardon iniquity. And He passes by our transgression. There's many reasons there's no God like unto our God, but the most distinguishing is this, that He pardons iniquity. I mean, what would we be if we didn't have forgiveness? Where would our hope lie? As you consider all the world's religions and their gods, and even as you consider the false teachings about Christ and so-called Christianity, if you're honest, then you have to conclude that there is no God like the God of this Bible. Are there any other gods you can think of that are said to offer a full pardon? Isn't that amazing? What gods offer a pardon? Other gods. Spoiler alert, none. In all the world's religions, the only hope of receiving mercy is somehow that your good deeds will outweigh your bad. And that in that process, you can appease whatever God you're worshiping. And what's sad is they, they place the hope of their eternal destination on their goodness, their works. Now, does anyone else find it amazing that in all of the world's prevailing religions, people overwhelmingly are choosing a religion which requires them to work in a day of laziness? This is a head-scratcher for me. It really is. I, I look at how lazy society is. But yet, when it comes to religion, there can't be a God that's done everything for you that all you have to do is believe and put your faith and trust in. Surely we have to work to some extent. But it's almost like God has, has made sure that that doesn't happen. That that kind of a God doesn't exist outside of Him. It's absolutely amazing. And over here you have the God of the Bible who, who knew we weren't good enough and said, I will sin." Christ to die for you, to bring you up and out, and all you have to do is put your faith and trust in me. And over here you have all the other gods of the world saying, if you're just good enough, if you'll just work enough, if your good deeds will outweigh your bad, it's amazing. Why is there a choice for this when you can have forgiveness and a full pardon? I don't understand. I really don't. And I know it's because I'm in Christ, but 
I, I don't understand how people can actually look at a God who is saying, you work for me, you work for me, you work for me, and maybe I'll be merciful to you one day. You'll never have joy. You'll never have peace. You'll never know if your eternal destination is secure. And over here you have Christ who bled and died on the cross to remit your sins, saying, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. People are saying, I don't want that. I don't want that kind of salvation. Surely i got to do something. Meanwhile, they're on the dole. It just doesn't add up to me. Well, that was my little fit. Forgot it was Sunday school. Now, a pardon can only be granted to those who are guilty of a crime. At least admit guilt. I mean, you're essentially admitting guilt when you receive a pardon. Therefore, when, when, when God says, I will pardon, when Micah says, who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity, there's guilt implied. In Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary, he defines pardon as the release of an offense or of the obligation of the offender to suffer a penalty or to bear the displeasure of the offended party. And he went on to state this, we pardon the offender when we release or absolve him from his liability to suffer punishment. We seek the pardon of sins, transgressions, and offenses. End quote. So the offended party is God. We deserve to bear his displeasure. Because we have rebelled against His laws. And if we don't confess our sinfulness, we will bear our punishment. Once we acknowledge our iniquity, plead for mercy, God is merciful to forgive us. And He will extend a pardon to us for all our transgressions. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10 through 10, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. So to say we have no sin is to say God's word is not true. And to say His word isn't true is to make God a liar. And in so doing, we will suffer the penalty for our crime against God. But who is a God like our God? (laughs) Once we admit our sinfulness and confess our sin, we find forgiveness and we are pardoned from suffering the penalty we justly deserve. Jeremiah 33, verses 7 through 8, And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. You see, Israel deserved the punishment. They deserved captivity. They they were reaping what they had sown, just like we deserve the consequences for our sin. And... 
but once they confessed to their crimes against God, once they confessed to their guiltiness, they were on the path to being pardoned. And the same is true for us. I don't know what kind of home you were raised in, but in my home that I grew up in, my dad made it clear, you're better off to just go ahead and tell me the truth. Just go ahead and confess. It's not in our nature. Daniel, he lived through the Babylonian captivity. Can you imagine that? He was there when they were taken captive. He was there at the end. For 70 years he lived in Babylon, had a Babylonian name. God said, if you'll just acknowledge your sinfulness. Well, Daniel, in chapter 9, he begins to pray to God and he begins to confess the sins of Israel. And, in, and, and he did so, by the way, after he read the book of Jeremiah. He had read all those prophecies. And he could look at that and go, my goodness, God's word is true. It, it all came to pass. And if all that came to pass, surely the captivity is going to end in 70 years because, God, you said so. And so Daniel, he, he begins to pray, and it says in Daniel 9, 4 through 6, And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession, and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love Him and to them that keep His commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled. Even by departing from Thy precepts and from Thy judgments, neither have we hearkened unto Thy servants, the prophets, which spake in Thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers and to all the people of the land. I'm just simply trying to establish here this morning that if you want a pardon from God, you have got to admit you're a sinner. That you've transgressed God's law. That you are guilty of violating His commands. Because here's the deal. Many try to convince themselves they really aren't that bad. Well, I'm really a pretty good guy. You're not. And so people are deceiving themselves, and God's Word is not in them. And it's very hard sometimes for our independent Baptist kids because they're not raised in the sins of their parents. And they end up living a life that's pretty righteous and moral. And it's hard for them sometimes to see just how wicked they really are. Because the temptation for us is to go, I'm not as bad as Brother Foley. I'm not as bad as that guy. You know, I mean, I haven't worshipped a false god. I, I, I haven't committed murder. Whatever. And people try to convince themselves, I'm, I'm, I'm really all right. Of course, you know, the, you know the verses, but just in case. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Then, of course, in verse 23 there of Romans 3, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, get this now. How can a God who is just pardon iniquity? God, we deserve His punishment. And yet, he, he can pardon iniquity. He can pass by our transgressions. How is it possible that a God who is just can pardon the guilty? It's because all the judgment of our sin has been poured out upon Christ while on the cross. 
He took our punishment. He paid our ransom. The sinless one became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. You see, we deserved it, but God said, I know you can't be good enough. You know, this is going to come up at some point in our Sunday morning's service while we're in chapter 3, which we're starting this morning in Genesis. But isn't it interesting that Adam and Eve in a perfect environment still sinned? People say, man, if we could just win the world to Christ tomorrow, it'll still be a mess. Because it won't be long until we start choosing to do the wrong thing. I have no doubt it would be better, but it'll still be a mess. Because that's, that's what we are. We're rebels. We rebel against God. And so God said, I know you can't be good enough. You had perfect parents in a perfect environment, and they still chose to sin. They raised their kids, and yet he still chose to murder. God said, I know you're not good enough, so I'm going to come down to you. Who is a God like unto our God? Leviticus chapter 16, we, we learn of the scapegoat. Two goats were brought to the priest. One would be killed as a sin offering. And the blood would be sprinkled upon the mercy seat. It would be placed upon the horns of the altar to make an atonement. The priest would then lay both hands on the, on the live goat and he would confess the sins of the camp of Israel. Uh, symbolically transferring the sin to that goat. And then that goat would be led away into the wilderness and would be let, would be let go free into the wilderness. But it was bearing all their iniquities and picturing them being removed from the camp. And the ceremony there of the scapegoat is a clear picture of Christ. By the way, if Leviticus bores you, just look for Christ. And so Jesus shed His blood for our sins. His blood was put upon the mercy seat for us. He carried them away forever. The, the, the Bible says in Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid the iniquity of us. The Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Just like the scapegoat. God laid our sin upon Him. Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. There doesn't come a point when you're you're heading west that you meet east. Ever. God says, I've I've removed your sins that far. The, The picture and foreshadowing of Christ and the scapegoat is clear. But it's also a lesson of how we must learn to confess our sins. And that's what I've been saying this morning. God said, but only acknowledge your iniquity. And so with the scapegoat, the priest had to lay his hand on on the head of this goat and then confess sin. And that's what we have to do. You have to humble yourself and confess your sinfulness if you want to receive forgiveness and be granted a pardon from the punishment we deserve. And if we confess our iniquity, there's not only pardon, but notice what it says next in our text in verse 18, that he passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. In this we see that we are justified in Christ. Justification is just as if you've never sinned. We confess our sin, we're granted a pardon, And then God says, I'm going to pass by your transgression. 
It's, it's as if God doesn't even see it. As if it doesn't even exist. And so God not only removes the punishment we deserve, but He, tr- he chooses to treat us like we never went astray when we come back. Amazing. He cast away our sins. We just sang that before Sunday school. We'll see more of that in verse 19. We see next in verse 18 that God doesn't retain His anger forever because He delights in mercy. Who is a God like unto our God? And and though we will go through punishment for our rebellion, as God brings us back into a right relationship with Him, He will not retain His anger forever. How much better would our Christianity be if we would just learn to delight in mercy? You see, people, sometimes they'll pardon someone who has wronged them in the sense that they say, oh, I've forgiven that person. And and maybe they've kind of extended a pardon. They removed the suffering that they were inflicting upon them. You know what I'm saying? And they still retain their anger. And, and it's just mind-blowing. Years after the fact, ten years after the fact, still retaining anger for something you said you pardoned them for, and yet you're still hanging on to it. Oh, I've forgiven them. And yet you're still miserable about it. Who are you hurting at that point? Yourself. So in reality, they're still bitter. They've not learned to pass by the transgression and extend mercy. Inwardly, they're still, ang- they're still angry. And we have to learn to be like God and let go of our anger. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 10. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. <laughs> How much better would our homes be and our church be if we would just learn to be more like God? Can I just encourage you this morning? Stop bringing up the past. If if you said you have forgiven it, let it go. Let it go. Don't retain the anger. Delight in mercy. Now, I know we don't possess the ability to forget like God does. But we can still have a good relationship with others. Like my dad always said, you can get over it or die mad. So I just learned to get over things. Verse 19, He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And that will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. What a great verse. Is there any else from this verse that needs to be said. This is absolutely amazing. He will turn again. He'll have compassion, subdue our iniquities, cast sins into the depths of the sea. Lamentations 3 verses 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And then later on in that chapter, verses 31 and 32. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though He caused grief, yet will He have compassion according to the multitude of His mercies. It is God's compassion that reveals His love for us. 
He pities us in His tender mercies. He wounds us for our good, but He provides for us the balm of Gilead to cure our wounds. He is the good Samaritan who doesn't turn away from us while we're laying battered in the gutter, half dead. But He's moved with compassion for us and He treats our wounds. And though we don't deserve it, He heals us up after we've gone astray. He restores us back to life. He's the father who's waiting for the prodigal son to return. And when he sees him afar way off, he's moved with compassion. And he embraces him and he puts the best robe on him and a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and he kills the fatted calf and he throws a celebration because we've come home. Psalm 78, 38, But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. And we see next here that he subdues our iniquities, which means he treads them under feet. In other words, God gives us victory over our sin. Hallelujah. How can he do this? Because he's the one that's conquered sin. He's victorious over sin when he raised, was raised again from the grave. He treads them under feet. You see, sin is too strong for you and I to overcome. You can only bring your flesh into subjection for so long. And eventually it's going to fail you. Jesus said, the flesh is weak, the spirit is willing. The spirit will not sin. It will not let you down. But you have to walk in the spirit. And God says, I know that sin is too much for you to overcome, so I'm sending Jesus Christ for you. And so we find victory in our Lord. He's the sacrificial lamb. Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 8, verses 2 and 3, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. And then last in verse 19, we see that God will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Who is a God like our God? What other God offers that? <laughs> this is amazing. No other God promises to do nor can do like our God can. All right, we've got to close this in verse 20 in a hurry. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. I hate to shorten this because there's a lot we could get into right here in this verse. But the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, in short, is this. It's the new covenant. God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham. And that everlasting covenant is fulfilled in Christ on the cross when He confirmed the new covenant. God promised to Abraham that a promised seed would one day arrive. And in this promised seed, who is Christ, all the families of the earth could be blessed. That's all of us here. We can be blessed in Christ. Uh, and so the, the new covenant is being made righteous in Christ alone. I, I've got to skip these verses for sake of time, but if you read Galatians 3, just read the whole chapter. Um, I'll give you the ending of that chapter. It says, And if you be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we inherit those same promises. What is the promise under the new covenant? It is that our sins and iniquities will be remembered no more. They are cast into the depths of the sea of God's forgetfulness. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I'll put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. 
Who is a God like unto our God? There's none His equal. He pardons iniquity. He passes by transgressions. He doesn't retain His anger. He delights in mercy. He's compassionate. He subdues our iniquities. And He casts our sins into the depths of the sea. And He keeps His word. Why would you ever want to forsake Him? Why would we ever want to leave Him? We serve a mighty God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.